I talked to a man recently, not a member of this church, in fact, not even in this city, who said to me, Bugner, I've been through a terrible time of surgery, and he has been, very critical surgery, very serious surgery. And he said, I'm, I've been afraid, and I just don't know whether or not I'm ready to die. He said, I'm afraid to die. I don't want to. But he said, I'm, I want you to pray for me. I'm not sure that I know the Lord. Now, this person I have known for a long, long, long time. I mean, like many years. And I believe this person knows the Lord. I believe that this individual has trusted Christ in his heart. But he's not enjoying the certainty of it. He's not benefiting from the confidence that things are right between him and the Lord. He's not experiencing the release from fear that is rightfully his as a child of God. So this morning, I want to look in a passage of Scripture in the Bible. In fact, it's one entire book. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not going to preach for four days. It may seem that long sometimes. I'm not going to preach for four days. But there's one little book in the Bible that's devoted almost exclusively to dealing with this uncertainty and this question. It's a book inspired by God, written by the Apostle John, and it's 1 John. Now, you know John the Apostle wrote the Gospel of John, and then he wrote three letters called 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then he wrote the book of the Revelation. Now, this is the little book of 1 John. It's not the Gospel of John. It's long over toward the end of your... New Testament. Now, if you don't happen to have a, your New Testament with you, I'm going to give you the references and I'm going to read everything, but you may want to go back and read this book all the way through. It's only about five and a half pages in this New Testament of mine. You can read it uh, in just a short period of time. And often when I counsel with people who, who believe they've trusted the Lord, who, have, who feel that uh, they joined the church and before that they'd had an experience with Christ and they, they, they think they're Christians, but they don't know that they are, and they have doubts in their minds, they have uncertainty in their hearts. Before we talk, I always say to them, look, you read the book of 1 John all the way through. In fact, if you read it all the way through two or three times, before we talk, it will greatly assist us. And often, people that I tell that to call and say, I don't need to talk. Because the scripture answered my questions, it answered my needs, it gave me the assurance that I need. Okay, that's what I'm praying here today. If you're not a Christian, you may belong to the church, you may have gone to church all of your life. If you're not a Christian, you want to know it. If you are a Christian, you have a right to know it and to enjoy it and to be confident in this relationship with Jesus Christ. The little book of 1 John. Turn to the last chapter, the fifth verse, the fifth chapter, the 13th verse. Over toward the end of the book, he tells us why he wrote it. He says in the 13th verse, These things, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. That's you, isn't it? That's most of us, probably. Maybe all of us. You believe the New Testament account. You may have some questions about some of the miracles or some of the processes and some of the things that happened, but you believe God. You believe God created the heavens and the earth. You believe the Bible is the Word of God. You believe Jesus Christ 
was the Son of God. You, you believe all of that? John's writing this to us. A lot of us who have grown up surrounded by so much cultural Christianity, we've been acquainted with so many of the facts of the Bible all of our lives because we were privileged to be born in America, privileged to live in the West. Okay, this is for us. I mean, there's, it just shoots right down our pipe. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may, and here comes the great word, that you may know. That you may know it. So that it won't be uncertain. So that you will not be afraid. So that you will not be doubting. These things, he says, I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may what? That you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know it. You see, it's God's will for us to know. Not so we can puff ourselves up with pride and say, oh, look what a good boy am I. That kind of Jack Horner religion. And say, oh, boy, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I can do anything I want to do. That's not it at all. Because the realization that God has come into our lives and that he has given us salvation doesn't make us proud. It makes us grateful to God. That we can relax not in our own attainments, in our own goodness, in our own morality, in our own church membership, in our own liturgy. But we can reside in the character and the nature and the word of God. Now that's something. I tell you, that takes a lot of fingernail biting out of our living. These things, he says, I've written to you who believe that you may know. Well, what things is he talking about? That's what this whole little book's about. Now, I can't, don't have time for all of them, but I'm going to mention two or three of the, of the gauges. The gauges. The tests. So that you and I can look into our own lives and look into our own hearts. Now, these things are written. What things? Okay, the, one of the first ones is in the second chapter, first chapter, excuse me, beginning with verse 6. Beginning with verse 6. I want you to listen to this. I want you to listen to this kind of John's play on words here. I want you to listen to the relationship between saying and doing. Listen. If we say, verbally, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and what? Do not the truth. He doesn't say we haven't said the truth. Truth, according to the Bible, is not something you say, it's something you are. Truth is not words. Truth is a life. Truth is deeds. In fact, that's where the word belief comes from. It comes from a combination of two old English words, by life. By your life, you declare your belief. Belief is not just cerebral. It's not just something that goes on between your ears. It's something that goes on in your feet and with your hands, with your actions. If you say you have fellowship with him but walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. What we say may be the very words of God himself. But truth is not just verbal. It's personal. 
We say we have fellowship with him, but walk in darkness. We lie and do not the truth. But if we walk as we talk, in other words, that's what he, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what happens? We have fellowship with each other. And I tell you, one of the things you're going to read throughout this book of 1 John is the emphasis on together, on each other, on the body of Christ, on our relationship to one another. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. Now, in case somebody misunderstood that, that somebody says, okay, I'm over here, and I say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I'm trying to live my life in a way that is uh, in keeping with His will, man, I'm something else. I'm getting there. I'm a devoted, dedicated Christian. I'm almost perfect. In fact, it's just hard for me to find anything wrong with my life. In case you begin to be tempted to that extreme, John comes in inspired by God with that next sentence and he moves way over here to the other side and he says, wait a minute, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. If you react to what God has done and to what God is doing and to the peace of God in your life, if you react with pride, and a feeling of superiority and personal excellence. If you begin to react like that, God says, wait a minute. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, you trick yourself, and the truth is not in you. You know what God wants us to do? He wants us to be right over here in the middle. Not getting off the road on the right side, not getting off the road on the left side, because if you notice, as the philosopher said long ago, extremes meet. Extremes meet. What God is saying is this. Look, you are to be right in the middle between your talking and your walking, and this is what it means to be a Christian. It means that you recognize that we are all confessed sinners walking together after Jesus Christ. All of us. That's all this is. This is not a congregation of the crowd that's got it made. This is not a crowd of the super saints over here getting together on Sunday morning and patting ourselves on the back about what marvelous Christians we are. Nor are we getting over here to the other extreme and saying, man, all I do is sin. I don't have any Help, I'm just down in the dumps. Look, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we say and we walk in Jesus Christ, we have fellowship with Him, we have fellowship with each other, and the Bible says God goes on forgiving our sins. And that word right there in the original is a progressive. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and to go on cleansing us progressively, eternally, futuristically, go on forgiving us and cleansing us of all of our sins. So the first gauge is a new walk. Not just a new talk, but a new walk. Gauge number two, third verse, second chapter. And hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. We have a new desire. We have a new desire. As St. Augustine said, love God with all of your heart and do what you want to. But wait a minute, underline that word all. Love God with all your heart. That means with all of your mind and all of your imagination and all of your desires and all of your thinking. 
That doesn't mean just love God and go out and do what you want to. It's predicated upon the truth that when God comes into your life, He begins to create a new desire. Now, you're not going to be perfect overnight. You're not going to be perfect in a year. You're not going to be perfect in five or ten years. In fact, you're never going to be perfect in this life. Never. But you have a new desire. And that desire is for the truth of God and the Spirit of God and the life of God to seep down through the conscious and the subconscious all the way down and get control of my reactions and my desires and my hopes and my dreams to begin to permeate through all of the soil of my life. Now that doesn't happen overnight with anybody. But it's something that's begun. That's what it means to be a Christian. You say, I've trusted Jesus Christ. I believe in Him. I, I have confessed Him with my mouth. I'm endeavoring to confess Him with my feet by the way that I live. I have a new desire, but I tell you, Buckner, I need help to live up to that desire. Wonderful, so do I, and that's why we need each other. That's why we're here. That's what it means to be a member of the church. It's what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. It's to encourage one another in this desire that has been planted in us, not by ourselves, but by Jesus Christ. The second gauge, a new desire. Now, the third, move over to the third chapter and the 14th verse. Third chapter, the 14th verse. Now, here's that word again. We know. Did you notice it in the last chapter, the second chapter, in the third verse? Hereby, we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. You hear that recurring theme? No. You can know. You can know. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love each other. We love each other. Now, let me tell you something. I know there are a lot of things wrong with the church. I know a lot of more things are wrong with the church, and I don't mean just Trinity Baptist Church. I mean churches everywhere. But I read articles in secular magazines and sometimes religious publications and even sometimes by people who profess to be devoted Christians who are just raking the church over the coals. Let me tell you, I know all about that. I know more about its problems than some of these folks who are writing articles about it as authorities. It, it, it has a lot of frailty in it. It has a lot of failure in it. It, it. it has just human beings in it. And it's going to be that way as long as I'm a member of it. And it's going to be that way as long as you're a member of it. And frankly, I am distressed and sometimes lose my patience with these individuals who are constantly raking the church over the coals to save their own conscience or to try to bind up a hurt spirit. You know the church, with all of its failures and frailties, fallibilities, with all of its human error, listen, the church is the bride of Christ. It is his bride. That's what he says. And one of these days, he's going to come for his bride. Now, you can say some things about me, and I may ignore it. I may say, well, he's just a nut. But let me tell you, 
you say something about my bride, about my wife, and I may move back on the other side of 1946 in a hurry. And some things I say and attempt to do won't be Christian at all. Now, I'm not projecting onto God the frailties of my own human flesh, but listen to me. When you start talking about the church and you talk, start talking about being faithful to it and being involved in it and being supportive of it, I want you to know you're not talking about a human organization. You're talking about with all of its frailties. It's got Simon Peters in it. It's got uh, James and Johns and it's got... Simon Peter, it's got Paul in it. It's got John Mark who went home in it. It's got all folks like that in it. But listen, it's the bride of Jesus Christ. And you need to be a part of it. You need to be involved in it. You need to be supportive of it. That's what it means to love the brethren. It doesn't mean just love them when they're lovable. It means love them all the time. We know we've passed from death unto life because we love the brothers. Listen, he who does not love his brother lives in death. Now that's right there. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. That's what God said. Henry Nowen is a Catholic priest, and I was on a retreat with him not long ago, and he's written some remarkable books. We have two or three of them in our church library, and one of them is a book entitled Reaching Out, one of the best books on prayer and the spiritual life, the Christian life that I've ever read. It's just so down to earth and so real. I recommend it. Recommend it without hesitation. Henry Nowen says in his book that there are two kinds of people in the world, basically two kinds of people in the world. One is a person who is a clenched fist. And the other one is a person who's an open hand. Isn't that interesting? You're either a clenched fist or you're an open hand. You're either hostile or hospitable. Hostility or hospitality. One of the two. Characterizes most people. That's what the Lord is saying here. He's saying to be a Christian means that you are helpful to other people and you love other people. That's what he says over in the fourth chapter of the 11th verse. Beloved, if God so loved us... Now, now I want you to point out what he's saying. I want to point out what he's saying. God loved us like we were and like we are. Now, if God, who is perfect and who is holy, if God so loved us, we ought also to love each other. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God lives in us. Did you hear that? I want you to notice this reciprocity here. Not only if you love God will you love other people, but if you start practicing love for others, God's love is realized in you. And he says, if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. That means his love grows up in us. So we grow in God's love by loving God's people, by loving other individuals. That's what it says right here. We love God, 
That gives us a love for others. And we love other people. That increases our love for God. You say, Buckner, that's tough. How in the world do you do it? Well, let me just say a word about the need to, to uh, help other people. My goodness, we live in a world where like we join hands on prayer on Sunday morning where we need to help each other. We need to pray for each other. Most of us are a lot more aware of our failures than other people are. Now, I know that would surprise some people who major in other people's problems. Some folks take a graduate degree in being specialists in other people's sins. But let me tell you, most of us know more about our problems than the specialists do. And what most of us need is not someone else pointing out the problem. What most of us need is someone helping lift up our hands. Moses even needed that, do you remember? He needed people to stand beside him and lift him up. Ann Landers is a favorite of mine. I don't know whether you read her or not, but she is. How many of you do? Okay? A lot of you. Well, you know who I'm talking about, of course. Ann Landers said that the three greatest lies, you know what the three greatest lies are? Number one, the check is in the mail. The second greatest lie is, this is my last cigarette. And the third greatest lie is, I'm from the federal government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> well now, in contrast to that, she says, we ought to substitute some new sentences, some words of helpfulness. And she lists her three. Be a good, uh, good thing to do. Maybe at lunch today when you're talking or sometime with your family. Talk about what are the three best things you could say to somebody. Well, Ann Lander says the number three, first three things are, number one, dinner is ready. <laughs> no, it's not quite. You got a little longer. <laughs> dinner is ready, number one. Number two, you're looking great. You've lost some weight. Make you feel good after Thanksgiving, one. And number three, all is forgiven. I love you. I want to ask you to join me in doing something this next week. Whenever a negative, critical, caustic comment begins to come up out of our minds, Let's substitute it with this new desire that's there inside of us. It may be only an embryonic desire at this point, but it's there. Substitute it and, and say some of these sentences. I just thought of a few. How about thank you? I need you. You help me. I believe in you. You're beautiful. You're the greatest. Muhammad Ali isn't. You are. And the best of all, God loves you. And I'm trying to. <laughs> now, the reason I say that is because you've got to be honest about this thing. And it's not easy to love people who are unlovable.
Is it? It isn't for me. It, to love people who are unlovable. Jesus said you need to love other people as you love yourself. Well, if I can find out how I love myself, then I can find out how I'm supposed to love other people. Well, to begin with, I've got to learn how to love myself, not in egotism, but to love the fact that I am loved by God. That makes me worth something. And it's on the basis of the fact that God loves me, as it says right here in the 19th verse of the 4th chapter, we love Him because He first loved us. And we get a new view of ourselves, a new opinion of ourselves when we begin to see ourselves as the object of God's love. Okay, then I can begin to say, hey, I need to love you like I love myself. And I begin to realize that I don't always like myself. I don't always like what I do. I don't always like what I say. I don't always like the way I act and react. But I can love you. How can I love you? Can I do it through my own energy? Can I do it just by willing myself to do it? Can I do it by reading books by Napoleon Hill on the laws of success? No, all of those things are good, but that won't work. God's not foolish. Look at that next sentence. He knows exactly what we need to be able to do this. You get through reading that 11th and that 12th verse. If God loved us, we ought to love one another. That's what ought to, but we don't. We can't as we are. If we love one another, God dwells in us and His love is completed and perfected in us. Yeah, but I don't love like that. Okay, how does it happen? Verse 13. And here's a, the next point. Hereby, know, there's that word again, we, hereby know we, that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. The only way I can love people as I love myself, the only way I can love people the way God wants me to is for me to have some God inside of me. Have God's Spirit in there infiltrating into my spirit, overcoming my selfishness and my pride and my indifference or my hostility. The only way I can do that is for God's Spirit to come inside of me. Well, he said, Buckner, how do you do that? Do you have to jump up and down, scream and holler, twist God's arm, pray all night? No, 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 no. All you've got to do is ask Him. He said that. All you've got to do is ask. Just ask. And He will fill you with His Spirit. Believe it. And it will begin to happen. Just believe it. Now, you need to do something to help yourself, though. All of us do. That's the reason the Lord left the church here. If the only reason was just to have people accept Christ, then the moment a person accepted Christ, the Lord would take them on to heaven. He just, he just leave a little uh, forward unit here, you know, of eight or ten folks just to get on the radio and television every week and read John 3.16. As soon as the person believed it, God just zipped. Take them on to heaven. No, sir. He left us here because He wants us to grow in grace. He wants us to know His Spirit. Well, to do that, we need to get in the atmosphere of His Spirit. We need to get around people who are His, and we begin to catch the Spirit, and it begins to catch us. Oh, you know what a cowboy fan I am, and I watch them on television, and that's exciting, and I get there, and I just... You know, I'm pretty calm most of the time. Martha gets all worked up and excited about it. But uh, 
I get all enthusiastic about the Cowboys on television, but let me tell you something. There's nothing like being there, and I've been there a number of times. In fact, I was there this last Thursday, and I froze to death. But I was so excited about being there, and you catch the spirit of it by being there. Now, you can watch it on television, and you can sit there in warm detachment and watch it, you know, and it's good. It's good, but it's not the same. Or you can move a little further away and you can listen to it on radio. Or you can wait until Monday morning and read about it in the newspaper. You see, the further you get away from participating in the actual event, you experience a diminishing of spirit. The same thing happens in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. The closer you are into it, the, more, the, the closer you are to the sidelines, the more involved you are, the more spirit you have. You move away and you become a television Christian. You can turn it off. You can listen to it if you like it. Go answer the telephone. You move away from it. The spirit diminishes. Or you can be a radio Christian. You move over here and say, I just listen to the radio. I don't have time to go. I'm not going to get involved with the people. The spirit diminishes even further. Or you can say, I'm just an isolated Christian. I just don't want to get contaminated by going down there with all of those imperfect people. I just get alone by myself and read the Bible. You are at the bottom of the list. You're way down there. Oh, you may go to heaven, but heaven's not going to ever get in you. And that's what God wants to do while we're here. He doesn't just want to take us to heaven. He wants to get heaven into our living and into our relationships and into our lives through the presence of His Spirit. All right, what does He do? He gives you a new walk and He gives you a new desire and He gives you new relationships and He gives you a new spirit. And how does He do it? Well, we're right back where we started over there in the fifth chapter. Just before that 13th verse, I want to back up and read you something. Now listen. And this is the record. John tells in the first chapter, let me tell you fellows something. He's writing this. That which I saw and heard, I declare to you. I'm not telling you something that was handed to me by hearsay. This wasn't given to me by some second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand eyewitnesses. Look at it if you're interested. Over there in the first chapter, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. I was there, said John. I saw him. I heard him. I was a part of it. I was on the team. I was not sitting at home watching it on television or listening on the radio or waiting a thousand years to read it in somebody's Bible. I was there. I saw it and I heard it and I declared unto you that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's in 1 John. Now that's what he's saying here. Now listen, over to the last of the letter now. And this is the record, 11th verse, that God has given to us eternal life. It's not ours. We haven't earned it, bought it, deserved it, any of that. God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in the Son. He that hath the Son, has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. Closed fist, open hand. If you'll just open your heart and invite him, the Son of God, the Son of life, will come into your life. And he'll give you a new walk, and a new desire, and a new relationship, and a new spirit. 
And that's just for openers. There's more, more, more. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Everybody. I want to say a word. I want to impress upon everyone, myself and every member of our staff and every deacon and every officer of this church. I want every one of us to pray right now, Lord, come into my life in a new and fresh way. For this invitation is not just for people who are going to accept Christ as their Savior or people who are going to move their membership into the life of this church. It's for me. It's for you. It's for every one of us. Say, Lord, as I'm saying, even as I say these words, Lord, come into my life in a new way, a deeper way. Help me, Lord, to ask you to fill me with your Spirit and then to believe you've done it. And then to start looking for the evidences of this newness. And help me, Lord, to begin to yield to some of the temptations of your spirit. I've yielded to the other temptations so long that it, I need some help, Lord, to start yielding to some good temptations, some good impressions, those impressions of your spirit. And so I have these desires. Help me, Lord, to express them to these new relationships. I need that. Maybe all of us need that. And so I ask God, you've been a Christian 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. He has something fresh and new and helpful for you today. And so just ask him, Lord, come in. Fill me up. Throw out some of the trash. Change some of my direction. Help me in my relationships with other people. Help me to love people that I just don't like. Help me to love them through your spirit. Help us all, dear Lord, to be more like you. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Very quietly and prayerfully we're going to stand. I'll wait here if you trust Christ. Join this church. Move your membership here. You say, Buckner, what do I have to do? Do I have to make an application? Do I have to send off to the church where I belong to join? You don't have to do any of that. You just have to come down here and let me shake your hand and meet you. We'll get some information from you. We'll write the church. We'll talk to you. We'll answer your question. We'll do anything to help you. It's not difficult to do at all. You don't have to bring any recommendations. We're not going to send out any questionnaires or anything like that. We're interested in you, just like you are. That's why we sing, just as I am. That's the only way any of us can come. That's the way we invite you to come right now. So let's do. Let's stand. Let's sing together.